Thank you all for being here. My name is Matthew Feeney. I'm the director of the Cato Institute's project on emerging technologies, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here for the screening of Cyberwork and the American Dream. Uh, the plan here is uh, for us to screen the film. It's about 55 minutes, uh, but then the really interesting event is afterwards where you get to listen to uh, me interviewing uh, the creative team behind uh, the documentary. Uh, before the screening begins, uh, just a few housekeeping notes. Uh, please, like a regular film, uh, silence your cell phones. Please silence your cell phones. Uh, and uh, please refrain from some uh, ongoing chitter-chatter that might uh, distract some of your uh, fellow attendees. Uh, and uh, that's, that's about it until the conversation afterwards. Uh, the, the conversation will wrap up about 5.40 before reception in the Winter Garden. But without further ado, uh, I present uh, Cyberwork and the American Dream. Thank you. Artificial intelligence, not just a new technology, it's a revolution. It will change every single major industry. I think AI is the new electricity. Artificial intelligence enables machines to speak like humans, to see like humans, to reason like humans. But will robots and artificial intelligence replace humans? A third of American jobs are at risk. There is going to be significant disruption. Anybody who's on a phone, the job's gone. New technology displaces some forms of labor. That's the whole point of it. Jobs have been killed off for centuries by machines. In the past, safety nets helped families in times of uncertainty and got children ready for the future. But what about now? These massive technological changes require big interventions. I think in the US we are at a crisis point with our social programs. If we compare the performance of American students with that of students in other countries, we do pretty badly. The days when you can get a four-year college degree and then expect to dine out on that for 30 years is long gone. We should be good in panic. Just how scared should we be? He's a robot. Without you, what could he do? There's no limit to what he could do. He could destroy the Earth. In this hour, we will examine the history of technology and the future of work. I'm historian Elizabeth Cobbs. Fables have long reflected our fears of technology. Icarus flew too close to the sun and was killed by his invention. Dr. Frankenstein was destroyed by the monster he created. Movies from Metropolis to the Matrix have played on these fears, riveting us in our seats, giving us nightmares, and selling tickets. Good morning, Dr. Cobbs. Meet your new assistant. The latest in robotics and artificial intelligence. Robots for the classroom. It's the future, Dr. Cobbs. Why do we fear the very things that bring progress? 
For centuries, governments held back invention. The Ottoman Empire banned the printing press. The Chinese emperor outlawed voyages of discovery. The pope imprisoned Galileo. Queen Elizabeth prohibited a weaving machine that would put knitters out of work. It's some kind of primal fear. Maybe it goes all the way back to the Stone Age. What if we'd never overcome these ancient fears? What was life like before technology? How about we rewind history? of how we live relative to our ancestors a couple hundred years ago who were scrapping out living on the farm, dying in their 30s and 40s, half of their children dying. Families seldom had enough to eat. Terrible plagues killed routinely. People were cold. They lived hand to mouth. A person who lived 2,000 years ago didn't live much differently than somebody that lived, say, 350 years ago. Because after the plow, there really wasn't a lot of innovation. Women and men rose before dawn to tend their animals and worked into the night, repairing tools and spinning thread. In colonial Boston, three out of 10 children died in the first year of life. The tolling of funeral bells was so frequent that towns regulated them as a public nuisance. So it was utterly miserable in 1800 and before. You were hungry. You were cold, you were uneducated. The life of humans was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Before invention, there was little economic progress for thousands of years. Life expectancy was so poor that world population barely grew. Then, history split in two. Humans began inventing machines to supplement what they could do by hand. It was the start of the first industrial revolution, driven by steam. First industrial revolution happened at the end of the 18th century, and that was steam engines, locomotives, railroads, and steamships. The railroad is the quintessential innovation of the industrial revolution, particularly those huge railroads that span the American continent. In time, there was a second industrial revolution driven by electricity. Then the second industrial revolution, which I called the big one, happened starting around 1870. We had electricity, the internal combustion engine, and the first wireless communication. His invention of the light bulb has often been ranked with the invention of the wheel as the most beneficial to mankind. Think of the electric light. Think of subways, think of elevators, think of electric machines replacing old clumsy steam engines. Think of the um, household innovations, the washing machine, the dishwasher. A big week's wash, but it won't ache any woman's back. No bending over the scrub board while your arms and fingers ache. The washing machine freed women to join the labor force. They say a lady in Missouri even taught her ringer how to shell peas. Then came computers. The third industrial revolution started around 1960 with the mainframe computer. More than two million digits can be recorded. Many computers, the personal computer, 
By the end of the 1980s, we already had the basic elements of what we consider the modern digital age. I asked for a car, I got a computer. What were the results of these three industrial revolutions? People left farming, went to school. They got jobs, earned wages. Their children survived. A middle class emerged. I live better than the richest person lived 100 years ago. Take, the, you know, I live better than J.P. Morgan. He didn't have an iPhone. He didn't have open heart surgery. He didn't have penicillin. You can't have people figuring out penicillin. They're trying to figure out how to put enough food on the table to keep them alive till tomorrow. We've literally gone from an 18-year life expectancy to, during the Cro-Magnon era to all the way to 80 today. The extension of average human life expectancy probably is humankind's greatest accomplishment. The car led the way to a frontier with wall-to-wall -wall carpeting. In just a few hundred years, industrialization transformed life on our planet and charted a path to the stars. So why did invention suddenly take off? What caused history to split in two? The first industrial revolution sprang from a new idea around 1776 that empowered inventors. It was the idea that all people are created equal and thus have an equal right to profit from their own brain power. As Adam Smith said, the liberal plan of equality, liberty, and justice was amazingly productive in the economy and had, of course, the immediate effect of making people free. It's absolutely crucial to our understanding of the Industrial Revolution to see that it was in part a shift in values away from the aristocratic values of previous eras to the middle-class values, the work ethic. Opportunity became open to all, especially in the US. The Declaration of Independence said all men had an unalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But the pursuit of happiness is not just kind of pleasure. It's not just the pursuit of ice cream. It's, it means the pursuit of economic and social success. The founders incorporated three principles into the Constitution to guarantee equality access to opportunity, transparency of information, and rule of law. They had both idealistic and practical motivations. The country was young, vulnerable, and poor. The country was heavily indebted, and it was not at all clear circa 1790 whether the experiment of the United States would actually succeed. And the founders understand that you either grow or you become a British colony again or colony of somebody else. The first Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, knew that America could not simply farm its way to wealth. He wrote a plan to encourage manufacturing and invention. That transformation of the United States from colonial backwater to world leader happened because the U.S. was a highly innovative society with a highly innovative economy. And what drove that process was the ability of quite average people to invent something. Well, we had a little damage, 
white as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. The founders wrote invention right into the Constitution. The Constitution allowed anyone to patent their ideas. Everyone else could see their patent application. Courts protected an inventor's monopoly on sales for a small number of years. What makes America different from the rest of the world isn't the inherent inventiveness of the people. It's that if you invent, and you take a risk, you have a high probability of being able to reap the fruits of your efforts. The patent office was the most democratic piece of the American government. The nation benefited from the brain power of people from all walks of life. Thomas Jennings, a free man of color, patented dry cleaning. He used the money to buy his family out of slavery. Mary Anderson patented the windshield wiper before women could vote. Common people could rise from poverty. One man born in a log cabin to illiterate parents became the first president to own a patent. The United States became a nation of inventors, and that pursuit of innovation and the patent that sanctifies it uh, became a very important part of, of American culture, to the point that it became a distinguishing feature of the United States. American inventors transformed the world. Benjamin Franklin dazzled Europeans with his experiments in electricity. He warmed fellow citizens with his Franklin stove. Robert Fulton designed Nautilus, the world's first submarine for Napoleon Bonaparte. He patented the world's first steamship on New York's Hudson River. Cyrus McCormick of Virginia patented a mechanical reaper in 1834. His threshers saved the backs of men worldwide. Isaac Singer of New York patented the sewing machine in 1851. His invention saved the eyesight of women. One day, a man in one part of the country will communicate by word of mouth with another in a distant place. Over the next century, Americans, many of them immigrants, patented more inventions than any other people. Patents literally made America. But there were winners and losers. Older businesses went out of business. Those workers lost their jobs. New technology displaces some forms of labor. That's the whole point of it. The new things are phenomenal for the users. And for the people who used to make the old things, those businesses are often not going to make it. Remember John Henry and the steam drill? So every steam drill destroyed certainly 10 jobs of people hammering spikes into railroads. The, the robot of the 19th century was the steam drill. So you have a whole progression of one occupation being decimated, but other occupations uh, taking their place. Machines like this destroy jobs. Think of the number of people who'd be working if we didn't have these power looms. Yes. I guess every woman in America would be weaving, and every home would be a sweatshop producing clothes for the family, like they were before we had power looms. I don't think I'd like that very much. Telephone operators, gone. Travel agents, almost wiped out by airline and hotel websites. We're going on a vacation together, and we'd like you to help us. We like swimming and tennis, and uh, we like to dance. I think I can fix you up at a place where you'll meet a few congenial young men. 
How would you like that? Oh, that, that sounds good. Well. You don't make horse and buggies like we used to. Um, and so those people went through disruption when there was change. You know, no one wanted a faster horse. <laughs> you know, you wanted a car. Economists call job turnover, driven by innovation, creative destruction. Creative destruction is what capitalism does. So an innovator comes along with a good idea, and they start a company, and very often they create an entirely new industry around it. That's easy. That's the creation part of it. New companies, new industries, new jobs are all part of that eureka process. However, that eureka process displaces what was there before. The old industries go away. They're just not needed anymore. That's the destruction part of it. Sometimes those displaced turn violent. Industrial revolution wasn't pretty. The resistance to industrial technology in 19th century Britain was often violent. Luddites, Ned Ludd was a mythical character, smashed up machinery. Disrupted workers often could not imagine what they do next. Like the tender of the livery stable when the horse was replaced by the automobile. At the turn of the century, people couldn't imagine motels and motor parks and drive-in movies and all the things that were made possible by the automobile. So our imaginations aren't capable of thinking up all the new jobs. Adjusting to the new economy is, is hard, and it always has been hard. I mean, that has been the price we've paid for the fact that you and I are not spending today hoeing a field of potatoes. Overall, life was better once people conquered their fears and governments protected invention. Countries that embraced new technology found that average income increased by 10,000% in 300 years. People were freed from constant disease and poverty. Life expectancy tripled. Hi, Dr. Cobbs. Oh, right, robot for the classroom. Okay, robot for the classroom, carry these tests. I am not programmed to carry things. Well, then what do you do? I can recognize faces like those of your students. Artificial intelligence has ignited a fourth industrial revolution. What is AI? Artificial intelligence is not really about intelligence. Artificial intelligence is simply the next wave of automation. Artificial intelligence is already in huge ways making our lives better. When you get on an airplane and fly from San Francisco to New York, 99% of commercial air miles at this point are flown by a machine, not by the person. AI gives us a clear shot at building self-driving cars that will transform transportation. I think we have a clear shot to transforming agriculture. I think AI will help doctors with diagnosis, with care of long-term health conditions. The best doctor probably can do 60, 65, 70% uh, um, accurate guesses looking at, 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 at the screen. Machine now does probably 80, 85 to 90%. Scientists can grow new bladders and new blood vessels and parts of hearts and even parts of lungs. Artificial intelligence will allow researchers to pick up on patterns that they couldn't otherwise do. It will allow them to gather data and sort through the data much quicker than they would have been able to do with just their human brain. Combined with robotics, 
artificial intelligence will transform manufacturing just as tractors changed farming. One of the challenges of explaining the impact of AI is that it will change every single major industry. I think AI is the new electricity. Artificial intelligence uh, enables machines like robots to speak like humans, to see like humans, to play games like humans, to reason like humans, even to communicate like humans. Quiet, please. I'm doing the talking. I'm sorry. That's the most remarkable thing I've ever seen. Mathematician John McCarthy coined the term artificial intelligence in 1955. He predicted that computers could be programmed to mimic human thought. You are listening to the heartbeat of the Sage computer. Every instrument in this room is constantly testing, pulse-taking, controlling. For decades, scientists pursued McCarthy's idea in vain. Then, in 1997, artificial intelligence came back into the news when IBM's Deep Blue computer defeated world chess champion Garry Kasparov. It was a painful defeat in 1997, uh, not just because I lost to a computer, it was the first match I lost, period. I don't recall any particular point where he made a mistake that lost you know, a significant number of points. I think it's outstanding uh, scientific achievement. The strongest chess players, including the world champion today, they are much, much weaker than machines. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Watson. Since then, computers fueled by artificial intelligence have gotten better and better at beating our champions. I reached a certain conclusion after playing with machines, fighting machines, working with machines. Any process uh, uh, that we can quantify for the machines, machine will do better. Three critical developments finally made artificial intelligence practical. First, processing power became faster and cheaper. In 1985, the most powerful computer was the Cray-2. It filled a room, cost $35 million, and was blind, deaf, and mute. Today, smartphones process data 10 times faster, cost under 1,000, and can see, hear, and speak. Data storage improved as well. In 1956, IBM's best hard drive weighed 2,000 pounds and leased for $3,000 per month. It had a storage capacity of five megabytes. Today, a thumb drive has 200 times more storage and costs less than $5. Then, digitization made vast amounts of information available. Books, sounds, pictures, and data from sensors were digitized. Today, 4.6 billion cell phones around the planet feed the growing pool of data. 90% of all the recorded data in human history has been collected and stored in the last two years. The internet distributes this data globally, instantly, and at zero cost. But it took more than fast computers and digitized data to make AI real. The third essential element was a new type of computer programming called deep learning. Hello, iCub. Hello. Who am I? You are Tony. And who are you? Recently, a lot of the improvements in AI have been due to one type of technology called deep learning or called an artificial neural network. A traditional computer program cannot learn. 
it requires a detailed list of instructions. If the computer encounters something its human programmer did not put on the list, the computer crashes. Neural networks are different. Instead of following instructions, they write instructions. At the beginning, a human defines a goal and feeds huge amounts of data to the computer. The neural network then crunches that data to find the best way to achieve the goal. For instance, if you give the machine um, a picture of a bottle of water, the machine will look at it and will compare the pixels in the image with the pixels in many other images of bottles of water that humans have previously tagged and said these are bottles of water. The machine doesn't know what you do with it. Do you throw it? Do you eat it? Do you drink for it from it? It has no idea. Neural networks recognize patterns in complex data, but humans teach the computer what to look for. Think about it as if you had an all-powerful but somewhat dopey genie at your disposal, and you said, make me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and he shows up and he just drops the bread and a jar of peanut butter and a jar of jelly and a knife in front of you. And then you say, no, 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 I want it as a sandwich. So they go, okay. And he gets out the piece of bread and he spreads some peanut butter on the bread, spreads some jam on the bread, and he puts them together with the peanut butter on the outside here and the jam on the outside here and slaps it down on the table. You're like, no, 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 the peanut butter and the jelly have to both go inside because I don't want to get my hands all dirty. That's how a good sandwich is. Okay. That's how the jobs of the future are gonna feel to most people we're going to have computers that can do things we can't do, but we're gonna spend our time, instead of doing the job, the jobs are gonna be too hard for us to do in many respects, actually trying to carefully specify what exactly we want them to do, because they don't care what we mean by a sandwich. Artificial intelligence also makes robots smarter. Cameras and sensors have expanded the jobs robots can perform and construction materials are stronger and lighter than ever. Robotics puts computation in motion. Imagine a future where people would connect with machines in much more intuitive ways, where machines would be able to understand what people want. In that future, everyone will be able to use robots, just like everyone uses smartphones. But is this vision of AI too rosy? Does AI have the potential to take over? Movies portray robots as thinking creatures bent on destruction. Warnings abound in the media. We just don't know what's going to happen um, once uh, there's intelligence substantially greater than that of a human brain. What do we do? Full artificial intelligence could spell the end of the human race. Some speculate about a point of no return called singularity. Singularity is a point in time after which artificial intelligence has progressed so much that it's impossible to predict what's gonna happen next. It's sort of this black box that we can't touch because we don't know what's coming. I'm not afraid of the singularity. I'm not afraid of it because I think that humans will be at the center of it. You're not a bad dancer. The public impression is that these machines are going to come, marry our women, and drink our wine. There is zero technical support for the idea that machines are going to become sentient creatures with their own independent goals and desires. Part of the mystique of AI is its ability to learn from data, figure out new things by itself. But at the end, it is just a piece of software. Just because we're so good at building specialized intelligences, it does not mean that these evil sentient killer robots are anywhere on the horizon. But that message does not sell movie tickets. You had your time. 
The future is our world. take over humanity, I have a different fear for us to have. What if computers become hyper-intelligent and want not to do our work for us anymore? They want to be like our dogs and cats and just lie on the couch all day. If you could run the world or just lie on the couch all day and have somebody else take care of you, which would you take? Humans and machines are different. Humans seek new experiences. Machines don't. They have no imagination or intuition, and no one knows if they ever will. People are very different. We learn from an example of one. We don't need to look at a million examples of what a bottle is in order to know what a bottle is and what to do with it. One of AI's advantages is its reliance on data instead of intuition. Some companies now use performance data to decide raises rather than personal recommendations. AI can reduce bias, but if the data is flawed, AI can magnify errors. They do not have common sense reasoning. Uh, they require a lot of training, a lot, a lot of data that is manually labeled by people. And even with that data, sometimes they make mistakes. You can have the smartest and most reliable witness in the world, but if that witness were trained using completely faulty information and never was allowed to understand the variation between what that information was saying and how the real world works, you're going to get a biased opinion. So just as it's true that a very smart expert might give you garbage in, garbage out, all these technologies will give you garbage in, garbage out, potentially. The negative side of all these neural networks having an impact is they can be stupid. They're, they're not by default smart, right? It's like a little kid, right? Don't do that again. Don't do that again. And so having people try to define and manage and weight all those things, that'll be a necessity. History shows that all technologies have risks. Electricity was frightening at first. Thomas Edison electrocuted an elephant to show that while electricity could kill, it could also be made safe enough for a child. Once we learned to manage the risks, electricity brightened our world. If you think of robots as artificial people that are coming to compete with us and take our jobs, that's not a helpful perspective. If you think of robots as the next phase of automation, just as the automobile was or the railroads were, then you get a very different perspective about what its potential benefits are. AI and robots are tools that we invent, we create, they're tools by the people and for the people. Cranes lift heavier objects than we can. Calculators are faster at math. Dogs detect smells better. Nobody worries about the fact that an automobile can run faster than a human being, or that an ATM can count money more accurately than teller. We see those as advantages. We don't build machines to compete with people. We do not build machines to make our lives worse. We build machines to improve our lives. AI is a tool that allows us to make decisions based upon extensive data instead of gut instinct. From driving across town, to investing for retirement, to undergoing surgery. There's about 60 years worth of really solid research comparing human decision makers 
versus algorithms on exactly these kinds of important decisions. The results of that body of research are incredibly clear. For heaven's sake, take the algorithm. As computers, which are levers for our minds, and robots, which are levers for our bodies, make it possible for us to move larger boulders, as Archimedes would say. AI and robots will perform all kinds of tasks we would rather not do ourselves, or that make us more efficient. All done. Now you have all my students' names and photographs. Show me Jose Lopez. Lopez, Jose, current grade average, B+. He has missed two classes this semester. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so here's Jose's test. Can you grade it? I do not have that capability. Can you learn how to do it? My functions are limited, Dr. Cobbs. Robots and AI cannot do everything. A program that flies a plane cannot read x-rays. But there is a lot they can do, and they're putting people out of work. Leaders are worried. 90% of the jobs that will be had by our young children or grandchildren simply don't exist today. Something like 60% of occupations have about a third of their activities that can be automated. We estimate that two-thirds of all jobs that currently exist in developing countries will be wiped out by automation. New technology has always done this. At the turn of the century, 70% of Americans worked on farms. Now 3% of Americans work on farms. 57% of the jobs that were done in the 1960s don't exist today. We don't have telephone operators, of which there were millions. We don't have elevator operators. We don't have gas jockeys. But now the speed of change has accelerated. That's what's really different. It took a few decades for the agricultural sector to fully absorb those innovations. When it takes place overnight, people whose skills were once very valuable are suddenly not so valuable. And they're going to have a tougher time finding the opportunities that they need to, to thrive. The pace of technology-driven creative destruction is accelerating. So photo-sharing sites, uh, most prominently Instagram, come along, and relatively quickly, Kodak goes from being an iconic American company to being a bankrupt American company. At its peak, Kodak employed about 140,000 people, gave them good middle-class jobs in America. When Instagram was bought at the peak of its value by Facebook, it employed 14 people. The social media king will pay $1 billion to buy Instagram. It will also hire Instagram's roughly 10 employees. Some middle-class jobs are gone for good. Global competition has changed, too. Those good jobs, probably high-paid but low-skilled jobs, were the product of a time in American history when the U.S. didn't have to compete very hard against the rest of the world. We were industrially dominant. The world's now changed. There is a lot of competition. There's this engine of job creation in the American economy. In the post-war decades, that engine used to be cranking out good, old-fashioned, solid, middle-class American jobs that were stable, let you have a decent income, let you provide for your family, let your kid have a better future. Carl Amory is such a person. Carl's life at home reflects the security he knows at work. What's going on now is that that engine is now kicking out lower middle-class jobs in pretty large numbers. These are less stable, they are more precarious, they're not as well paid. So the days where I um, have a lifelong contract through a union uh, with a factory or a service job, 
um, and I know I can be here for 30 years and I'm going to retire and, and it's all kind of laid out. Uh, that is so 1950s and 1960s, but it's just not today. America is never again going to have a large, stable, prosperous middle class doing routine work. Job disruption hurts some people more than others. One third of men in the state of Kentucky who are prime working age are not in the labor force at all. They are not employed and they're not looking for a job. So 40% of America is getting educated. Um, they have savings. They're they have stable families. They're, they're prepared for the future and they're resilient so they can take a blow, okay? And, and they can see their way to retirement. 60% of the country is not. It's not moving ahead. It's not getting educated should. It's not building stable families. And it's in a position where it's not only not safe for retirement, but um, if it had to raise $400 for a medical or auto emergency, it would have a real problem. A lot of people don't think the economy works for them. In this period, back to 2005 and 2015, the percentage of households that saw their market, their wage-driven incomes flatten or decline is a stunning 81% in the United States. That's everybody. The New York Stock Exchange is in a panic. Everyone wants to sell. No one wants to buy. History shows that income loss creates social instability. Will that happen again? What happens in a downturn is that populist currents become more attractive. You tend to get very conflictive politics, which can take a very ugly turn. During the Great Depression, hardship led to changes in government. The 30s were a crisis of how the economic order worked. You had bread lines, you had mass unemployment, you had people who even were well-educated, had had good jobs, couldn't find work. That was the moment when it really became clear that we needed to build new types of structures, guardrails, and safety nets to ensure that capitalism functioned. Governments built programs to help families get back on their feet, from unemployment insurance to public works. When these huge, powerful new technologies come along, and they come along infrequently, steam engine, internal combustion engine, they can change an entire economy. They can interrupt the normal pace of economic progress. When that happens, we don't just let quote, the market take care of everything. These massive technological changes require big interventions from our society and from our government. Everybody is already on the dole in that sense because we all take advantage of public goods. Infrastructure, roads, highways, public transportation, clean water, clean air, that's all government regulated and financed, and we all benefit. There are no large, successful economies in the world that do not today have a government-run safety net of some type. The Social Security Act provided retirement benefits for eligible workers. President and Mrs. Johnson and Vice President Humphrey arrive for ceremonies that will make the Medicare bill a part of Social Security coverage. But the U.S. safety net was unique. It was private as well as public. After World War II, when rivals were weak and international markets were hot for American products, employers began offering generous health and retirement benefits to attract scarce workers. That was unique to the American experience and to the American economy. Most other rich democracies didn't do it that way. Most other rich democracies didn't tie health insurance and retirement security to the job. That was a function for government, and a job was just a job, right? You went to work, you got wages. What that did, though, was to 
in some ways punish American corporations. If you're an auto company here, you're paying for health insurance and retirement security when your German or Japanese counterparts are not. Employer safety nets have been shrinking since the 1990s. This puts pressure on government to fill the gap. We are at a crisis point with our social programs. Um, they are simultaneously bankrupting the government and not helping the people who need them. The biggest problem is their unintended consequences. Many of our social programs um, stop you from working. You lose the benefit if you work. Uh, you lose the benefit if you move to a place where there are jobs. Most of our current welfare programs and social safety net programs, they're just bad. Most people don't want to be on them. They don't work well. We hate them. We should be putting all these things back on the table because the change in our technology landscape and the change in our economy is so profound. If we don't start putting programs in place to deal with the inevitable disruption, you're going to have pockets of the country, if not larger swaths of the country, having to deal with significant unemployment. In the past, new technology made it fine for new jobs to come along. People are worried that the future is going to be different this time. It's hard to know. Uh, the question is, if it is happening, what do we do about it? I think that's the next question. America's safety net was designed for full-time workers in permanent jobs. Today, many are self-employed, part-time, independent or temporary. They don't qualify for company health plans, sick leaves, pensions, or workman's comp. They have no unemployment insurance. They work, but do not have a safety net. Some who can't find their way at all in the new economy turn to federal disability insurance. It used to be a very tiny share of Americans who were on disability, less than 5%. And now, among high school dropouts, that number is well above 15%. Boys who have nothing to do. And even a good share of high school graduates, around 10%, are on disability. Once you're on Social Security disability, you're on for life. And the reason is because if you earn uh, any money, you lose your disability check. The disincentives that keep people out of work, out of finding new jobs, out of retraining, I think are the real problems of the safety net. Knitting a better safety net requires new approaches. One idea is to replace programs like disability, unemployment, and social security with a fixed cash payment for everyone. This is called universal basic income. This idea that you provide a, a, a basic income to everybody um, that gives them a floor under which they don't fall, they can buy the basic provisions of life, and from there, they can educate themselves, they can enter into the market. If they want more, they find a job. Economists like cash. Economists tend to think, well, I think people are a really good judge of what they need, so we'll give them the money and let them decide what's important to them. Critics worry that universal basic income would undermine the work ethic. The danger of universal basic income is that people just take it and don't move on in life. While I like the fact that UBI is trying to solve an income problem, which is absolutely needed, I have a problem with it simply because Work is more than just income. This thing called a job has been a way to get a sense of dignity, self-respect. It's been a way to give yourself one sense of purpose, uh, a community, a social structure, something to go do. So there's this assumption that if people get free money, that the work ethic will go away. And that is just not the case. 
we have the evidence to suggest when it comes to lottery winners or members of the Cherokee Nation or the Alaska oil dividend recipients, people still work and in fact, in some cases work more. It's going to take a while to redesign the safety net, but there is one type of benefit every American receives that needs immediate attention, education. We were the first country in the world to set up universal, mandatory primary education. Everybody has to go through school all the way through high school. From about 1900 to about 1970, the high school graduation rate rose from about 10% to about 70, 75%. What made America successful all of these years is that we educated our people up to and beyond whatever the technology was. So when the main technology was the cotton gin, we ensured that people had universal primary education. When the new technology was the factory, we ensured that everyone had universal secondary education. We built the world's wealthiest nation when our citizens were the best educated and the best prepared for new technology. Today, we're below average for an advanced economy. If we compare the performance of American students with that of students in other countries, we do pretty badly. We aren't absolutely the worst, uh, but we are very, very low within the developed world in terms of performance. globalization is putting all these other educated people, pumping them into the world, and they're moving past us. School outcomes also vary widely across the United States. Hispanic students in Texas are at the top of the nation. The Hispanic students in California are at the bottom of the nation. Harmony Public Schools show what's happening in some Texas schools. Harmony sets high standards for both students and teachers. Specialized instruction in science and math begins in third grade. Robotics are emphasized in all grades. College planning begins in eighth grade, and college acceptance is required for graduation. The most important ingredient, good teachers. The value added by a really good teacher, a teacher who's in, say, the top 20% of teachers in the United States, is about a quarter of a million dollars over someone's lifetime. And you have to remember that she teaches probably 20 to 25 students a year. On average, we have very good teachers, but we allow ineffective teachers to stay in the classroom. Almost a complete impossibility of trying to keep the attention of 35 different people who will, you know, be thinking about what they had for breakfast, what they didn't have for lunch, why their boyfriend didn't write them a letter, whatever else it may be. If you get two or three bad teachers in a row, the student is in trouble forever, for lifetime. What we need to do is totally change the way teachers are paid so that we are paying people a lot if they are high, highly productive teachers, and we are not offering that same level of pay to teachers who are not very good at teaching. What greater return on an investment can you possibly get than your kids? If we agree that education is about preparing our kids for the future, what are we doing? We should be good and panicked. But the panic does not fundamentally come from technology. We are not preparing the children that we have today for the workforce they will be in tomorrow. I think our current educational system is doing a really good job of turning out the kinds of workers we needed 70 years ago. We need to better prepare our children. But what about adults for whom the future is now? How can we help older workers? You are angry. Not angry, just frustrated. How did you know that? I recognize emotions from facial expressions, sadness. <laughs> 
happiness. Yahoo, 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 yahoo. <laughs> Students who are sleeping. That's funny, but if you can't help me grade, how can you really help me? I can teach you how to code. You can create an artificial intelligence program to help you improve your teaching. Learn to code at my age? Anyone can learn to code. We all have to keep learning. In the past, you could go to school or college or vocational school, study a particular task and master it, and stop and just spend the rest of your life applying it. I think that that paradigm is gone. Now, things you learn in your first year of college will be outdated by your fourth year. In the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, you trained in something, and that job was pretty much gonna be available. What happens when those skills don't become useful anymore? What are you going to do? That means everyone has to find their extra, okay? Their unique um, value add. And I have to think everyone's good at something. Everyone's above average at something. I, I really do believe that. Some people are, are really good at taking care of the elderly. Some people are really fantastic entertainers. Some people are really good social connectors. What about the 70% of Americans without college degrees? The state of Colorado has partnered with Markle Foundation and private companies like LinkedIn to take a new approach with displaced workers. Career counselors in the Skillful State Network help people see the connection between their current abilities and emerging industries. They help workers identify new skills they need. The program coaches companies to look beyond formal qualifications and recruit for expertise. 19 states have recently joined Skillful. If you're a job seeker, you should have access to a well-trained professional that knows the economy, knows training pipelines, knows industries that are growing, and can give you strategic information so that you can be successful. My job is to help people understand that the pathway that they may have seen their parents or their friends in their community do aren't the only pathways for them. Automation means all of us need to embrace continuous retraining. Employers realize that they need to start investing in their workforce so that they don't have to look at dislocation because of a technology shift. Well, the social contract that companies like AT&T are making with their employees is very simple, which is we will actually provide you the, the access to post-secondary education. There's just one condition. You have to take these courses at home at night and on weekends. I think the most important skill in the future will be ability to keep on learning. In the technology world, in my world, we're used to new technologies being invented every five years, and then all of us have to change our work. What I tell my son is, if anything, learn how to learn. Uh, so whatever you go study, learn to learn, because you're probably going to need to acquire so many skills over your entire working life, and that's going to happen so rapidly. The biggest divide in the world is going to be the self-motivation divide. Who has the self-motivation to be a lifelong learner long after you've left home, and mom and dad aren't there to say, Tommy, have you done your homework? I love to learn. There, there's always something new. Whenever The more you learn, the more opportunity that's created. Are you new here too? Now I've been here three days. Some of those opportunities spring from things humans will always do better than machines. Ask questions, provide inspiration, give love. There are a lot of things that machines can do much better than we can. But there are so many more things that we can do much better than machines can. And these things primarily uh, involve creative reasoning, abstraction, um, strategic thinking. 
So the skills that are needed in the future are the ability to persuade people, the ability to form emotional connections, to express sympathy. Those are the skills that will wind up being valuable in the workplace of the future, as opposed to your ability to swing a hammer quickly and accurately. There's another set of skills that are even more valuable and growing in value even more quickly than STEM skills, and those are high-level interpersonal skills. And I'm talking about things like motivation, coordination, these interpersonal things. Wow, we're not gonna have a girl soccer coach robot anytime soon. For centuries, we work with our hands, you know, 90% of us. And then in the last 100 years, particularly since the Industrial Revolution, a lot of us started to work with our heads. As we go forward, more and more of us are gonna work with our hearts. The future holds promise, but only if we rise to its challenges. Fearing change, it turns out, doesn't slow change down. It only makes it more painful to go through. And we, as a society, need to recognize Technology is going to continue to speed up, and we need to get better at turning over our social norms and the way we teach our children and hundreds of other things so that we can keep up with the pace of change of the world. That's the difference between drowning in the water and riding the wave. How can America ride the wave? How can we make sure our economy improves everyone's standard of living as in the past? Technology itself is not a threat to prosperity. The threat is in neglecting to learn and neglecting our institutions. History shows that access, transparency, and rule of law spurred inventiveness. Safety nets help workers over rough spots. Education got them ready for new technology. If we want to be peaceful and prosperous, we must safeguard these traditions and take on the future. There are my first program. I can use the data from the test to rank my own lectures from best to worst. This way I know which ones are effective and which ones need more work. That is helpful. You are a good learner. All right, okay, time for class. Robots and artificial intelligence are our next set of tools, but they'll never replace us. Robots only have answers. We have the questions. Do you have a name? My name is Pepper. <laughs> well, Pepper, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. So I am lucky enough to be joined by the creative team uh, behind what we just saw. Uh, many of you will, of course, recognize uh, Dr. Cobb, but uh, I would like uh, the two panelists to introduce themselves. Maybe we could start with uh, the one we haven't seen yet. Ah, yeah. 
Hi, uh, uh, my name is uh, Jim Shelley, and I'm the director and producer of the film. And uh, the, we have a production company in San Diego called Shell Studios. And uh, we talked about lifelong learning here, and this is my second career. After 38 years of corporate life, I decided to make movies. And making movies is a lot more fun. <laughs> I can assure you of that. And I'm Elizabeth Cobbs. I'm an author, and also I teach at Texas A&M University. I teach everything from world history and the history of the Industrial Revolution up through PhD students. I'm also a senior fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution and the author of eight books on American history. So I wanted to start with a question about the, the genesis of this project. Was there something both of you were working on before that got you interested in this topic? What, what made you think that a documentary about the, about AI and robots would be an appropriate thing to spend some time on. Would you like to start? Um, you know, I became very interested in, in artificial intelligence personally, and, and um, I think one of the things that was frustrating for me is that there are a lot of films and books that uh, talk about uh, sort of this dystopian future where computers are going to take over our lives and as you saw in the film here. And that goes all the way back to Frankenstein, right? Mary Shelley, that whole book was, a, was a, the first you know, popular cultural reaction to the Industrial Revolution and fears that we would lose our humanity. And it just didn't seem right to me. And so um, what we wanted to do um, is uh, look at not necessarily um, uh, this from a fear-based uh, motivation. As Astro Teller says, you know, fear doesn't slow change down. It only makes it more difficult. Um, and to try to look at, at this revolution within the context of what we've done before and look at the, at, uh, the Industrial Revolution and that this is a natural um, evolution of what has brought us a world which, um, as you can see from the, you know, the, the film, has brought us penicillin and airplanes and much longer lives, etc. cetera. Um, so uh, we wanted to make a film that really was not advocating a point of view, but framing the discussion about what are the issues that we do need to work on, because there are many, to, to get through this change. And uh, so we're trying to formulate something that could be used as a discussion or a framework to be able to drive a national uh, dialogue on, okay, what, are, what, are, what do we have to do to get ready for this? Um, and not, oh boy, we better go hide in our closets, because I, I just don't think that's very useful. Yeah, we were sort of scratching around for what would be a next topic. We'd made a film on the history and future of U.S. foreign policy. And in fact, Christopher Preble from Cato was in the film, and we showed it here. Um, and I think we were trying to think about kind of what's the next big issue in many ways. And what was interesting was this problem of, of populism and fear, you know, and, and how um, I was hearing a great speech by General, um, Premier Admiral Jim Ellis at Hoover Institution recently, and he said, good leaders absorb fear. And I think so much of what we get in the popular media and in politics today, unfortunately, is kind of fear-mongering. And that's not going to help us. I mean, it's just going to make everything worse. And I guess as a historian, partly, um, I always call it the hell in a handbasket theory. You know, everything's, every generation thinks, oh my God, we're going to hell in a handbasket. And I think as historians, like, we would be in hell in a handbasket if that were true. And in fact, the interesting thing about history is, I, I, you know, I, again, I teach world history, is it's enormously comforting, really. We think back on other things we've gone through, which have been like so much worse, like the Civil War, like World War II, I mean, the Great Depression. 
If we look at that and how as humans we've managed to surmount all of those things where things were even darker, as they, and they're dark now, but you know, how can we use history to learn? And, um, and I think it, it really shows us a lot. Something that made me rather jealous of, of both of you while watching the film is the, the vast array of people you got to talk to. It was so historians, economists, people in academia, the private sector. And at least in, in this town, I think there are many conversations uh, that touch on what you covered in the film, namely, uh, what are we going to do about this? And there seems to be uh, sometimes a rather dominant feeling, feeling of, no, this time it's different. This time it's different. Uh, and of course, policy wonks are not always the best people to decide. This time <laughs> will be different. Sometimes you have to talk to historians or people in the private sector. So did you finish this project uh, with the attitude that, no, actually, we've been here before. This is a lot like the Industrial Revolution. This is um, something we'll overcome. It's not really that different. You want to leave this time? Oh. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I like to ask the futurist. <laughs> Jim's the tech guy. Um, I, I liked Russ Roberts' comment where he said, we don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody can predict the future. I always say, of course, that the past is the best predictor of the future. But on the other hand, we don't know. And so then the question is, how do we get ready for it? Because we could you know, sit here and bite our nails to the quick, thinking it is different. I mean, parts are different, right? The speed of change is faster. Um, you know, winner takes all is a, is a phenomenon, you know. A, a website can put a whole industry out of business. So some things are really different. Um, I, you know, I do like the comment that uh, Andrew Ang, who didn't say it in the film, but has said, and he's just like one of the world's top, most brilliant people on the subject. And he says, worrying about things like singularity is like worrying about uh, parking jams on Mars. It's, you can't say it's not going to happen, but there's so many things that we know are happening that we actually can see now. That's, that, those fears take our eyes off what is the real problem, which is prosaic and dull and utterly real, which is like our schools are broken. Yeah, we, we've been really bad at predicting what will happen with technology. I mean, I think... Um, uh, I think it was John Maynard Keynes, right, wrote in the 1920s that uh, so many new inventions that in the 20s that I think we're going to go to a 15-hour work week. Um, I don't remember when last time I worked 15 hours. I mean, I think we actually are working longer now. Um, if you and and when you know around the turn of the century, when 70% of the jobs were in farms, if you told a farmer that uh, there would be very few farm jobs left, and he'd say, "What would my grandchildren do?" and you told them, you know, they'd be baristas and they'd, you know, be pet photographers. And uh, so we've always been really hard at predicting this. Now, and, and there is no guarantee that it will repeat. But if we look at the past, we see that we've always gone through this. Now, that doesn't mean it's not going to be extremely difficult and extremely painful for a large number of people. It will be. It always has been. Um, but I think what we're trying to say is that you know, there are things we have learned about how to get through these periods so that we can make the transitions in a way that doesn't pull apart our societies, right? Because that's, um, that's a potential risk um, any time you have a great change like this. And, and it can pull apart society. I mean, I think we do know that. We see this, we see these, you know, many countries which are struggling in, in sort, of, sort of elemental ways. Um, so as in the Great Depression in the 1930s, you know, that helped to lead to World War II. So 
we can't minimize it and just say, oh, well, don't worry, it's, it's like an automated thing, it's gonna, it's gonna happen. We actually have to you know, do hard work to make sure that we're okay. We can be okay, though, and the future's in our hands if we take up those challenges. I know that earlier, uh, Jim, you mentioned you, you didn't want to present a point of view, but I'm gonna press you on one. Uh, because I think you, you talked uh, you know, to a lot of people about many of the different issues, but on at least the, the safety net portion of the, the film, you discussed the universal basic income. Uh, but of course, that's not the only option available, right? There's people discuss negative income taxes, um, all, all kinds of different reforms to the social safety net. So what, what made you think to focus on the universal basic income as a possible alternative rather than others? And do any of the others appeal to you? Yeah, I, the, the issue of the safety net was a big part of you know, what we need to do um, to get forward. And it's a 56-minute film, so you can't cover it. We could do a series on the, on the various options. And we chose universal basic income because it's sort of the most talked about, and we tried to prevent pr to present the pros and cons for it. But the, the main the main issue, I think, really is our safety net was designed for a different economy. It was designed for large factories operating often in rural parts of the country that would close down during the low parts of a business cycle, and the government would you know, subsidize people's incomes until the business cycle came back and then the factories would rehire people. Um, that economy doesn't exist anymore. And um, so we need, we need safety nets. Every, every economy needs safety nets, not for permanent, uh, you know, we don't want people to stay on safety nets forever, nor do people want to stay on safety nets forever. They really don't. Um, but how do we redesign those programs to look at the gig economy, to look at people who often need to change, move around, change different states to, uh, uh, to find work, people who maybe can't find a full-time job, but maybe they could work 20 hours a week. With today's programs, you can't work one hour um, doing a part-time job, and, or you lose all your benefits. So I think what we were trying to do is, is you know, we, we did throw universal basic income out there. There are a lot of other options. Negative income tax is one, um, you know, Milton Friedman was a big proponent of that a lot of people are talking about. But we need, to, we need to look at them because the problem today is our programs have incentives to keep people on these programs. And it's expensive and the people that are on them, uh, you know, lose their place in the world, really. And so how do we, what can we do? As Andrew McAfee said, you know, we need to put these things back on the table enter into sort of a, a discussion as a, as a country about how do we fix this? How do, how do, we, how do we make it? So, um, you know, I'm not, we're not proponing it, but I, I do think that the main issue is that we just, we have, to dis, we have to start having serious discussions about it. You know, there's a quote from Milton Friedman, which I like, which is that a program designed only for poor people will be a poor program. Um, that one of the problems with, and one reason why it makes universal basic income attractive, is that it's something, rather than targeting somebody, you know, you're slacking. <laughs> Let's help you stop being a slacker, which of course is the implication often of programs like that, is that it then creates a, an additional social dynamic, which in a country as diverse as, as ours, I mean, this is the wonderful and you know, challenging thing about America is we're all very different. I love that about America. But it, it's therefore easier to stereotype people. We're not all one America. So how can we, and I don't know the answer. Mm -hmm. So press me all you like, but I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Maybe I can press you on something else. Okay. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, okay, so something that, 
did uh, occur to me while watching the film is uh, the, the the role of government in all of this, right? So the early discussions about uh, Hamilton's plan, and then discussion uh, about the the Apollo program, and and some would argue perhaps even the rise of the internet as we know it is really something where there was a lot of uh, government-funded research, uh, and part of me thinks, well, there's a lot of truth to the fact that uh, the the Apollo program was. Uh, a, a political project, and it was good to give the finger to the Russians, and that was part of the motivation, right? And that, that was right. part of But uh, do you see in, in the 21st century uh, a, a big role for government similar to uh, Apollo as driver of innovators, or do you still see uh, the private sector as where most of the innovation is going to be coming from? Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the traditional dis, uh, distinctions between basic research and commercial uh, viability and... and you know, building roads is not a commercially viable thing to do, nor is discovering the internet, nor is going to the moon. But we all know the trickle-on um, thing, you know, projects, we get integrated circuits from the Apollo program, and that worked out pretty well for a lot of companies. Um, so I think the answer is not, too sim is, is not simple in that it's either government or it's uh, corporations. I just think we have to also understand that government has issues, but government can also be effective. And let's look at where it can be effective and try to leverage that. And 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 the same thing for um, the corporate, you know, the private sector. Yeah, no, I, mean, I think again, that's the beauty of the system, and it's always a challenge to get the balance right, right. And we know lots of times we've gotten very unbalanced. But I mean, again, I'm I'm as Trey, I go back way. I mean, I think you know, what's this is what distinguishes us from animals. Like, it's pretty awesome that we invented government. Right? This is not a bad thing. Um, and so it's a question of how do you balance them. Certainly one of the uh, great successes of the United States is we created a structure of law, rule of law, transparency, access, that allowed private enterprise to flourish. I mean, that's, I think that's the role that government does, plays, is creating a framework in which individuals can then take a lot of responsibility for themselves. Um, commercially and in other ways. Mm -hmm. Something that struck me early on in the, the documentary was something unexpected, but I'm glad you included it, which uh, the question of whether uh, liberalism is a necessary condition of innovation, right? And, and with the ideal kind of political institutions. And, and I wondered if that was, um, that was something you were driving at, right? That there are certain necessary conditions for the kind of innovation that we saw with that famous uh, McCloskey hockey stick uh, graph, right? This growth of uh, innovation and economic growth. Uh, and yet, it seems as if that wasn't unique necessarily to the United States. Uh, how do you account for uh, you know, the Netherlands, England, other parts of Europe? Uh, what are the actual institutions that you think are necessary there? Uh, because it goes beyond the US Constitution. Right? Well, absolutely. And, and so it's kind of a, it's a little cheesy to say, and of course, American audiences, something that starts around 1776 and we all go, oh, I think that's <laughs> us. But, you know, it, it is certainly that period of the English Industrial Revolution, English uh, agricultural revolution, but which also coincides with the glorious revolution of 1688, not to get too geeky on you, but um, that idea, which also applies to the Netherlands. And so it, some people call it the industrious re revolution. Uh, and so, yes, I think it's absolutely central to liberalism in the classical sense of the word of liberalism, which is the defense of life, liberty, and property, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, that is amazing when you think about, I mean, humans have been, with the kind of brains we all have, 
you know, abil language abilities we all possess, cognitive abilities we have, those kind of human beings have been around a really long time. So why in the heck are we so unproductive for thousands upon thousands of years? And there's some, what, the, the new thing that comes along, the, the something that's in the water takes off in the 18th century, basically, you know, a little bit before, but 17th and 18th centuries. And so we are so lucky to have had this leap of imagination that goes back to our political ideologies that we, we take for granted. And I, I always think that the things you take for granted are the things that you don't get to keep. So that's why I, as a historian, I think it's so important to talk about what we get right, where our ideals come from, because those are the things you get to keep by, by not taking them for granted. And one of the, when we first started doing the film, I, I, I was not aware of the fact that um, the, the right to profit from an individual patent was written into the Constitution. It's a, it was the first, our Constitution was the first Constitution that actually wrote into it that each individual has the right to benefit from its, his, or, his or her um, own in, invention. You know, w women, women were patenting and, and benefiting from that before they could vote. It's sort of this fundamental, uh, it, and there was a reason for it, but it became part of this idea that uh, every citizen has the right to benefit from the fruits of his or her own labor. And I think that is kind of an American ideal that um, has spread far and wide, hopefully, and uh, helped drive innovation quite a bit. Your last comment reminded me of a few years ago here at Cato, there was a, a conference put on by my former colleague Brink Lindsay about economic growth, and, and he was doing a lot of work on copyright and patents. And I suppose uh, it inspired me to ask, what do you think about the arguments about the potentially stifling influence of patents on innovation and entrepreneurship? Uh, you hear about patent trolls and uh, actually these tools that are designed to foster innovation uh, actually um, hurting a lot of entrepreneurs and inventors. Uh, well, uh, those, and, and, and unfortunately, those arguments are made by large corporations um, who, um, you know, Thomas Edison, uh, all, all these individuals that are inventing um, things are the suppliers to larger corporations who are the ones really complaining about patents. Um, and and it, it, it's, it's funny, they, were, they tried to fix the patent system a few years ago and it really has stifled innovation because the idea is that anybody can, can patent something and then if a company wants to use it, they can use it but they have to pay you a fee. Now there are, there are patent trolls and I think that is a very small problem compared to the problem created when um, individuals can no longer feel that they get the benefit of uh, their own um, you know, intellectual and hard work. Um, so. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of critics. In fact, one thing we just didn't have time to go through and go into in depth in the film is the problems that some people perceive in what was called the America, America Invents Act, which was not very long ago, which got going partly because of the meme about patent trolls. Mm -hmm. But some folks argue that actually, like Stephen Haber from Hoover Institution, who was on, yeah. on the film, and have done a lot of work on, on research on this and thinks that we have actually weakened our own patent system in the last five or six years, made it harder to defend a patent. Um, you know, you have to lawyer up to do so, and, and that's the kind of thing which is not good uh, for private enterprise and, and individual um, initiative. So shifting from private companies to, to, to governments again, I'm 
aware that at least uh, in, inside the Beltway there are a lot of discussions about artificial intelligence in the context of national security as well as uh, competing with other countries. There seems to be uh, some people who think, well, we've got to be China on this because right. we're not the only uh, advanced country in the world and other countries are, are working on this. Uh, after working on this film, do you... Uh, do you have any sympathy with this nation v nation approach to it, or uh, is is there a better way of looking at the issue when it comes to AI development? Well, I think the 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 issue it is a very serious issue, and we didn't get into cybersecurity here, um, but but um, the U.S. doesn't have any major robotics manufacturing companies, right? They're they're primarily Chinese or German or Canadian. Um, and the issue there is, of course, you, when you sell somebody a robot, you can put a lot of things in the code of a robot and um, very hard to find. So one of the things that I think we should be concerned about is that we are way, very far behind in robotics. Um, and there are national security issues for that. And also, the, of course, the other issue is this Internet of Things where you have all these very low-priced uh, low or uh, low-cost uh, gadgets measuring your temperature and everything, those are, those are also manufactured offshore. And, um, uh, you know, it's something that we need to deal with. Uh, I don't know the, uh, there, there's, again, we didn't get into the whole cybersecurity cyber issue, but to me it's, it's something that's quite critical that we have to understand, uh, more for our own security than anything else. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, education, of course, in, in the film, and that's, that's a policy area I want to discuss. Uh, because it seems that a, a great lesson from the documentary is that actually we don't know what the future holds to a large extent, that um, in the, the past is riddled of um, bad predictions. And yet uh, there seems to be a widespread agreement that the education system is not... Um, what it should be uh, in the 21st century. But it, I'm unclear about ex what exactly... Uh, you would propose, right? Because uh, although we live at a time where we're surrounded by the internet and computers and all of this, um, it's still possible to live in the 21st century without knowing how a lot of that stuff works. And just because we're going to be living in a world with a lot of artificial intelligence and automation, it doesn't necessarily follow that, therefore, to succeed in that economy, you'll have to know how a lot of this works. Uh, so what does the, uh, the syllabus look like in your dream school uh, after <laughs> all of your research? Well, I... I, to me, one really important equation for everybody to have in their minds is that the United States became the world's wealthiest country when we had the world's best educated citizens. So there has been a tremendous connection historically between the success of the United States, the greatness, if you will, of the United States, which has been always directly related to education. So we are now, I think one of the recent studies, 31st in the world. Now, 31st is not good. <laughs> and you don't even have to be a crazy extreme nationalist to go, oh, us versus Canada or you know whatever. It's about just doing our best, and we're not. So what's on the syllabus, what would make it different? I'm not sure that it has to be everybody's got to know code. You know, everybody has to be excited about learning and feeling that they have the potential to learn. And the problem right now is we have a lot of kids coming into school who are just not getting great educations. And, um, and that's just basic stuff. I mean, reading and writing, it's not like, you know, higher mathematics even. So 
the fact that we're not doing that well, I think, is critically important. And that can have to do with syllabus, but also does certainly have to do with teachers. Um, because we do know that American students are not turning out in the way a lot of other people are all around the world. Some people think, and again, it's hard to say exactly the formula, but there is does seem to be a lot of consensus that it's teachers, that um, that the teacher makes. Oh, I mean, can't it, can't everybody in this audience think about that one teacher who opened your eyes, that one teacher whose class you wanted to go sit in, and that person possibly turned your life around. So you're a kid who comes into school and you never have a teacher like that. You don't even go past maybe. 10th grade, and you never had that teacher. And that's just, you know, just a tragic thing. And so um, right now, 70% of Americans don't have college degrees. Uh, we're 31st in the world in education. So I mean, this is stuff we can fix. And some people believe it's a lot of it's about comp uh, compensation uh, and paying the highest possible salaries we can afford for teachers. That will make it a very competitive occupation. You know, it'll make it really hard to become a teacher, right? You'll have to be really good. And you don't just lockstep compensate everybody, you know, every year, ratcheting it up, because then that encourages people to stay on who aren't that great at it. Mm -hmm. You know, we, and, and <clears throat> we end the film with this, which actually is copied from Picasso, but, you know, somebody asked Picasso, what do you think about computers? And he said, oh, computers are just not that interesting. All they have are answers. And you know, we end the film saying it's not the answers that are important. And, and as we get as technology progresses more and more, we will have machines which will give us answers that we could never have figured out ourselves. And the important, the human thing is what are the questions? And and part of education then becomes critical thinking. And what are the right questions? What are the things we need to pursue? Um, Another, you know, great sort of film reference was, you know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where they say, you know, what, what, you know, what, what the ultimate machine is going to come out with the ultimate answer, and he says, come back in a thousand years, and, and they do, and they walk up, and he says, you know, do you have the answer? He said, yeah, the answer is forty-two, and the point is, it's a silly question, right? Um, what is the answer to the world? And so the computer then says, you know, it's not the answer that's important. It's the question you ask because our technology is going to be able to answer our questions better and better and better. So I think liberal arts is actually more important than coding because it teaches us to understand what are the important questions that we need to find. That's being an English major talking. No, sure. Uh, <laughs> I suppose with my two philosophy degrees, I should. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, your discussion of these two policy areas, though, so um, the safety net and education, at least sitting here in Washington, D.C., I, I couldn't help but feeling, oh, we're really screwed. <laughs> I just thought you've, like, you've picked the, some of the two hardest policy areas for reform. And I thought, well, uh, I got the feeling watching the documentary, well, this has to get worse before it gets better. <laughs> that if, if, the, if our fiscal situation with welfare is not going to change anytime soon and if our education system isn't going to change anytime soon, while technology continues apace, uh, I worry that the current situation that we're in now, and by current situation, I mean political, cultural, will, will get worse before it gets better. Uh, am I wrong to be pessimistic? Well, it has gotten worse before <laughs> it's gotten better. I mean, we are in a you know, political um, a time of great political uh, <clears throat> confusion, conflict, uh, Americans having trouble talking to each other. So. My question is, you know, how much worse do we want it to get before we try to make it better? I don't know. That's up to you, right? So 
It's not, as Jim was saying, it, these are not simple issues. Anybody who thinks they are is fooling themselves. What's the interesting, I think Astor, Astor Teller had a great comment, the man from X, um, which is a subsidiary of, of Alphabet, which used to be called Google. It's all very confusing. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, he said, we should be good and panicked, not about technology, you know, but about our educational system and about our willingness to really look at fundamental issues. You asked about why we talked about UBI, and I realized some people are like, ah, oh, universal basic income, why even bring that up? And it is radical, but we've got to be start talking about the radical stuff. I'm not saying that's the solution, but I mean, in the same way in the 1930s, you know, it was an amazing thing, you know, and it was, of course, in the context of catastrophic events. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, we won't get to that point. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, these are the, the big questions are the really hard ones. I mean, this is, in my mind, this is along the sort of climate change discussion. These are hard things that give you headaches. Um, and so what I hope we can do with the film anyway is take a little bit of the headache away to say, okay, we, we, we do need to talk about this. We need, to, we need to keep this in the public dialogue. We need to discuss it in our communities. We need to discuss it in our families. And we need to keep it front and center because these big, big problems um, require big solutions which are difficult, very, very difficult, and if not getting more difficult, but that doesn't mean they won't go away. So, you know, I think our goal in the film is to try to keep this issue out there in a way that we can talk about it um, and at least make people aware of what are the things that we should be, should be trying to do. Mm -hmm. And I'm asking uh, only because I was reminded uh, in preparation for this event of comments uh, that I, I believe it was uh, Steve Bannon uh, during the uh, during one of his uh, podcasts mentioning the debate about immigration uh, in particular and uh, made the point, made the explicit point to say, well, it's not just like low skilled that we should be worried about. Like, I'm not a huge fan of a lot of uh, Asian engineers coming over and taking these jobs. And I think the effect that worries like that can have on the economy could be pretty uh, pretty devastating, actually. Well, one of the things we hope to point is that, you know, when it comes to manufacturing, um, you could, immigration is clearly not the issue, right? Because um, you know the, the, a lot of the shots we show there were, were at Audi's brand new plant. They built a brand new automated plant, which is highly automated. It's in the middle of Mexico, which is a low wage environment. People are building manufacturing plants highly automated with robotics, not because of labor rates. It's because they can run the factories 24-7 and the machines can say this part will wear down in 2.5 days and let's dial back the production a point or two and you can't do that with people. So, you know, the, this idea of manuf that, that, that immigration and manufacturing are taking jobs, what's taking manufacturing jobs is automation. And that will not change because if we don't automate, China will, Canada will, Mexico will. It's just the way of the future. So I hope people understand that, that as I think Steve Haber said, that you know the days when um, you could, you had a middle class job in manufacturing are just not they're not there anymore. They're gone, mm -hmm. and so to 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 hope that that will happen over again, I think is folly. Mm -hmm. Well, the, and the on the immigration issue, I mean, you know, historically immigration has only benefited the United States. I mean, the brain power. Um, I, wrote a book on the telephone not long ago, and you know, Alexander Graham Bell was an immigrant, you know, and he was taught high school. <laughs> so almost so much of our inventiveness comes from the fact that we're an open society and people can openly compete. And 
anybody can take out a patent. You can be a foreigner. You don't have to be an American citizen to take out a patent. And that's, you know, it's the idea is I think people who are really serious about stuff will borrow all the brains they can. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, and so that's, I think, uh, I, I do realize, of course, that's been a, a focus of, I think, to me, that is, that falls back in the category of fear-mongering rather than trying to look at sensibly what's gotten us ahead in the past and how we can do that again. I think of it as being like, those who can learn from history might be lucky enough to repeat it. <laughs> you know, America might be lucky enough to repeat our awesome performance if we can learn from the good things we did, which was included having an open immigration policy for most of our history. Mm -hmm. In the documentary, there's discussion of uh, some exciting technologies. Uh, the two, uh, so driverless cars was one that was uh, that was discussed. And at the end, there was a clip of children flying their own drone. And I think uh, the the widespread uh, proliferation of driverless cars and drones are really uh, in, in that policy area. We seem to be asking mostly when questions. So when will we have ubiquitous driverless cars? When will we have? Um, Amazon delivery drones, all that, uh, those sort of questions. Uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on any of the if questions. There are, uh, you uh, talked to someone from the Singularity University. Were there any technologies where the questions weren't when they were if that made you, uh, kept you up at night or got you very excited? Uh, and so these are technologies that maybe aren't even on the immediate horizon, but long term, are there anything out there that keeps you excited? I mean, as, the thing about artificial intelligence is it's not a product. It will be, it will impact every industry. It will be used in certainly every, as, as Andrew Eng says, it is the new electricity, right? Electricity can be used in electric motors. It can be used, you know, in fans, you know, all over the lights, et cetera. And AI is like that. It is a technology that will be part of every industry. Um, I can't think of any one particular technology that scares me other than what you'd mentioned before about cybersecurity. I mean, I think that that is, that is uh, as it's not, which is not a technology per se, um, but um, from what I learned about how AI works, which is responding to commands and being given, you know, basically making sense out of huge amounts of data in response to a specific request, I lost a lot of my fear about sort of it taking over the world and becoming sentient. But I, 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 I do think the cybersecurity issue is one that we're, and I know a lot of people were working on that, but that's, that's the thing that concerns me. Well, I think it's very interesting. Uh, the if, you know, Sonia Arison from Singularity University says, you know, I, she's very confident about this. And she says, I don't know if I'm the last generation to live to 80 or part of the first generation to live to be 150. Now, I know I've, I've repeated this to a lot of people who are like, oh, I don't want to live that long because it's just hard <laughs> enough already. And I'm like, no, it's going to be great because you, you don't have to live and be uh, debilitated. You can live, you can increase not your lifespan, but your health span, right? Wouldn't that be awesome? And so I don't know. That's the if ones. And I'm so that, they're not quite when ones. But... Um, I mean, and some of that still is also scary. I, I was talking with Jim, I don't remember why I was saying it. I said, Jim, you'll be the first guy who says when they can put a chip in your brain to help you remember more, you'll do it. I'm, I'm not sure I'll do it, because he's, he's got the Apple Watch. and he's, wired, yeah. he's, he's got the pods, that are, and I'm like, I just I don't, you, <laughs> I don't do half of those things. But some people are very open to them, and, and that certainly is part of the conversation. And that's something that, again, every person in the audience has to think about 
does that make me less human? Mm -hmm. And I think that, to me, that's also one of the very profound... I, I walked away from the film wondering, from the interviews which we conducted, we conducted all these interviews with these people, and each time you're like, you really want to know, really, what do you think, Daniela Roos? What's that going to be like? And um, I actually walked away thinking, I think what makes us think, as, what we all have to think harder about is what makes us human. Mm-hmm. Okay, I can't run as fast as a car. Or I you know, can't smell as well as a dog. I'm never going to be able to count money. Like, I, you know, I can't do all kinds of things, and there are going to be fewer and fewer things that I can do. Mm-hmm. So as some skills aren't needed, what does that mean for me? I mean, it's like I don't grow my own food. I wouldn't know how, really. My tomatoes never turn out. I, I, I don't know how to weave cloth. I kind of barely know how to sew because I did take it in seventh grade back in the dark ages when women all had to learn how to sew. But my kids don't know how to sew. A lot of people don't know how to even cook food, much less grow food. So we lose skills all the time. On the other hand, my kids can manipulate phones in a way I can't. So they have skills I don't. I have skills they don't. Every generation does. But it does push us more and more towards the direction of going, well, what what does make us special as people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so final question before uh, public Q&A. Uh, where's, where's Pepper? <laughs> I know Pepper, my friend. Now, Pepper is a Japanese robot, um, and Jim's quite right. There are not, when we were trying to find a robotics company that would let us borrow their machine, they were very nice about it. Um, yeah, we tried and tried and tried and tried. I'm going to give them credit. <laughs> Usually it's not enough. Um, so, Pepper's not here, but I tell you, you know, just when you think robots are going to take over, work with one for a day. <laughs> They are so dumb. <laughs> yeah, there are a couple of things that uh, filmmakers uh, are, are, never do. Never, never work with children uh, or boats, and I would add, or robots. Right. Um, it, 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 uh, they don't always get their lines right. They're not okay. flexible. <laughs> well, thank you. Now, we have, uh, uh, Elizabeth has a very, uh, is in very high demand and has a strict uh, 540 deadline, so now we are into... Uh, public Q&A. Uh, I would remind you all, this is actually where I hope that if we could have AI that would identify what a question sounds like. Uh, so <laughs> this is the Q&A session. Um, so questions are sentences that, uh, uh, that end in question marks. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, you might be able to uh, wait until uh, my colleagues who have microphones come up to you and uh, name your uh, affiliation if you feel like. I'll take the gentleman at the back there. Yeah, hi, Richard Grasmus. I'm here on my own, and um, but I, I just want to say that um, you know the message seems like such a you know kind of middle of the bell curve in terms of what's the consensus of you know Americans and what they're you know concerned about going into you know the next round round of uh, political uh, campaigns and so on. So as educators and communicators, you know, about to watch uh, you know the whole election process unfold. And having studied social media and all the new technologies for communicating messages, YouTube and, and all that, I'm just curious um, your thoughts on a nonpartisan basis on how to you know, get your kind of ment- uh, uh, message, which I think is very centrist and you know, appealing to a wide swath of people, either their concerns or optimism and so on. But your thoughts on, on if not yourselves, um, how you'd like to see that message uh, promoted over the next two years or so? 
Well, thank you very much for that question. And um, being in the middle of the bell curve is exactly where I want to be. Um, uh, I think that's where most people are. <laughs> that's why it's a bell curve. Um, yeah, so, well, PBS is, you know, uh, was very excited to get this. And, um, you know, it can be streamed, by the way, on the PBS app today and, um, and the website at PBS SoCal, um, as well as check your lo local listings. Um, but, you know, we're hoping that this, as people watch this, it will, be, will become part of the discussion of, you know, when a candidate comes through, what are we going to do about, you know, this, this huge change that's going to happen with people being out of work because of technology? What are we going to do about that? I mean, I think that that is one of the top questions that everybody should be asking politicians. It's only, it's only when we ask candidates and politicians specific questions that they think they have to come up with answers. So maybe it's on us to, uh, to continually remind people running for office that this is really something we need to talk about. One of the things we've done with the film also, we have a, a study guide. So if you go on to the Cyber Dream, Cyber Work Dream. Cyberworkdream.com. Dream.com. Yeah. Um, one of the things you can do is you can download a, a curriculum which has uh, co conversation questions for community groups. I mean, we would love it if people would take it and use it. And whenever you do something like this, you're making a tool that we hope people will take and use. I mean, don't just sit here in this audience, you know, go home and tell somebody else about it and make sure you get that PBS app and, and, and encourage teachers because I'd love to see students talking about this. And so that's why the curriculum guide is both questions for community groups that I think, I hope the idea is rather than, you know, again, focusing on the issues. We all know this is a concern. How can we work on it together? What are our goals? as Americans or as mem members of the world community. And, uh, and so I think there are many better ways to have conversations than we have. And certainly trying to not let fear drive them, whether it's fear of immigration or fear of robots or you know, all that stuff, you know, that just stampedes people. And that's not good. I'm going to take a prerogative and ask a follow-up. Oh, uh, I'm going well to, to ask about the, the context in which uh, the, the so-called big tech companies seem to be under bipartisan attack these days. And, and some of it, I think, relates actually to machine learning and AI. So in the wake of the Christchurch shooting, uh, a lot of the big tech companies were playing whack-a-mole trying to take down this uh, horrific footage of, of the attack. And uh, in large part, using machine learning and, and AI to try and identify to stop the proliferation of this footage. Uh, and yet, despite that, there were um, some lawmakers who seemed to suggest that that wasn't enough and that more had to, to be done. Uh, do, do you worry that there are going to be, that these private companies will come under top-down pressure to implement specific kinds of tools and to, uh, especially when it comes to content moderation, to figure, to address not just uh, videos, but also the spread of um, extremist uh, speech and, and other kinds of stuff? Well, you know, I think that we, as you said, we are seeing a backlash uh, on those kinds of matters. And I know, again, this or will it get worse before it gets better? I mean, I think that people are concerned and are right to be concerned. We saw this in the 2016 election here in the United States. Um, or in the Brexit vote, I mean, where there are major democracies which are being affected by, um, you know, AI and social media, which com combine together, which direct us in ways that are not good. So, you know, I, I think that that, you know, the only way, the squeaky wheel, you know, it's, it's the usual thing. You know, you have to have some pressure on big companies to do something. Um, I don't when, believe in, you know, uh, undermining the free press. That's a different problem. 
And you know, whenever any new technology comes in, we find that it's great, but we also find that that new technology introduces things that we need to regulate, right? And, and one of the examples is when television first started, what a wonderful thing. But I remember as a kid seeing, you know, uh, Joe the Camel commercials uh, run when, with Hanna-Barbera cartoons. So, you know, uh, but we said, you know, maybe we shouldn't be encouraging, you know, eight-year-olds to smoke. And so we put, for that specific issue, we said we should, we're, we're not going to have cigarette advertising on television. And maybe that's kind of where we are with social tech, you know, with social media. It's a wonderful technology, but we need to look at those areas where left unchecked could create significant damage to society and find a way to figure out what's the smartest way to deal with that. And um, I think, you know, the tech companies obviously don't want pitchforks coming for them, so I, hopefully they'll be part of a creative solution to that as well. It is exactly 5.40, so well done. Uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, Jim and Elizabeth is the only time we have on stage. Uh, at least Jim will be in the reception, which is taking place on the ground floor uh, in the Winter Garden. Uh, all that remains is for you to please join me in thanking uh, Elizabeth and Jim for coming. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much.